0: Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7. This chapter deals with the believer's ongoing struggle with sin. And because of that, we have to think about sin. And I think a lot of us often think of our sin problem as someone else's fault. Isn't that true? We want to blame someone. We'll say things like that, like, you know, it's not my fault, or the devil made me do it, or we even blame God, and we don't take responsibility, and the truth is we have ourselves to blame for our sin, and if you're a believer, we have God to praise for our salvation. Today, we are looking at Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13, and we are going to see that the law of God is good. The law is good. It is not sinful. It shows us that we are sinful. We're going to see today that the law is good and sin is bad. So if you're able, I want you to stand with me. and I'm going to read Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. It is, it is a huge privilege we have to open up Bibles and, and get to... Read the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, knowing that God, the Holy Spirit, uses His Word in our lives. So to call ourselves to attention before God and His Word is a good thing for us. What then shall we say? The law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that what, that sin might be shown to be sin. And that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. And Lord, we thank you that we can open up your word today. I pray that you would open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your word. Lord, I pray that you would change hearts I pray, Lord, that you would glorify yourself, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. The overarching theme of Romans chapter 7 is that God unites believers to Christ to bear fruit for him, and it involves an ongoing battle with sin so that we put our trust in Christ. So that we put our trust in Christ and not ourselves. The context of this chapter is the progressive sanctification of everyone who's been justified in Christ. How God works in us despite our sin, conforming us to Christ. And the awesome thing is this journey we are on of progressive sanctification is a guaranteed victory. The guaranteed victory, it, it, yes, it is a battle, and it is a battle between good and evil in our lives and in our hearts. It is, it is a war uh, that rages in our hearts. It, it is a, literally a conflict every moment that we are on this earth until Jesus calls us home or he returns, whichever comes first. But the journey is guaranteed victory. The, the outcome is victory in Christ. and. That's comforting. As painful as our sin is, it's comforting to know that in Christ, victory is assured. Ultimate victory is assured. What we've seen so far in Romans is the universal nature of sin. We saw it in Romans chapters 1 through 3. And and we saw in Romans chapters 3 through 5, the law cannot save you. We saw in chapter 6, the law cannot sanctify you. We saw last week in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7 that the law can't condemn you in Christ. We saw that God joins believers to Christ so their lives bear fruit for God. How God orchestrates a a sequence of events, a chain of events to accomplish his purposes. How we have died to the law in Christ, that which held us captive outside of Christ. So that we belong to Christ, we are literally married to Christ spiritually, him who was raised from the dead, so that we can now serve God. So that we can serve in the new way of the Spirit, because we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And so now we can obey God and bear fruit for God. So today we're looking at verses 7-13 through in Romans 7, and we're seeing the goodness of God's law. And the goodness of his law is hypothetically being called into question. The the question is, what shall we say about this? Is is the law sin? Should we be landing there? Is this the conclusion we should draw? That knowing that we are sinful, is it because of the law? And Paul gives an emphatic no. He basically says, no way. That can't be true. Freedom from the law did not... Include freedom to sin, as some Jews had falsely concluded. What Paul is doing in these verses today is he's given a defense for the goodness of God's law. How good it is. God uses the law. Even though sin uses it for wicked schemes, God uses the law. And so now we're going to see, and you see this all the way through the rest of this chapter, the goodness of the law versus the wickedness of sin all the way through you see it contrasted next time as we're in verses 14 to 25 you see it over and over again goodness of the law versus the wickedness of sin Now, there's a reason why we need to grasp the message of romans chapter 7 and a very simple reason it's because if you grasp the message of romans 7 you can also grasp the message of Romans chapter 8. And if you miss the message of Romans chapter 7, you run the risk of taking Romans chapter 8 and everything that follows in the wrong way. What happens a lot, and this is obvious, isn't it, that that Romans 8 is built on Romans 7, and Romans 7 is built on Romans chapters 1 through 6, And if you get it all the way through and you get it in the context and and what was originally intended, you're not going to then bring misunderstanding and discouragement and despair and wrong thinking into chapter 8. But that's what often happens. It's like this. We think, well, God's grace is so good, but, but the law is bad. That's wrong thinking. Or or we think this way. We think, you know, I'm relegated to a life of misery here on earth as I battle sin. It's going to be hell on earth, but I'll get to heaven someday. Or we think, you know, there's something wrong with me because I still struggle with sin. Or we even say, you know, I'm going to just give up or give in 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 the war on sin. I'm just going to throw in the towel. And so we need to see Romans 7, how it's meant to be. We need to see that it is not meant to discourage us in our relationship with with Christ. It is literally intended, and I hope you'll be pleasantly surprised by this, that it is literally intended to encourage a believer in their relationship with God. It's it's to bring you to a better understanding of what the Christian life really is like. Because there's a lot of Christians going around not understanding what the Christian life is really like all about it's meant to encourage us in christ and give us a picture of what life in christ is really like that our struggle with sin will continue in this earthly life and that peaks and pits victories and deep valleys are the way of life in christ and this is what god is using to progressively conform us to christ It doesn't excuse our sin in any way, but it gives us a realistic picture of what life in Christ is really all about, that our ongoing battle with sin exists so that we would put our trust in Christ and not ourselves. The flow of the passage is very simple. It runs like this. Uh, Some are tempted to think that the law is bad. Uh, No. Sin in us is the problem. Uh, It's not the flaw of the law. uh, The law exists to show us how sinful we are. And that is actually encouraging to a Christian based on what we're going to see today. The outline today is very simple. There's four points. Verse 7 Law exposes sin. Verses 8 through 11 Sin exploits law. Verse 12 Law is good, verse 13, sin is bad. That's the outline here. Law exposes sin, sin exploits exploits law. Law is good, sin is bad. It's like he's doubling down in verses 12 and 13. Here's how good the law is, here's how bad sin is. So let's pick it up at verse 7. At this first point, the law exposes sin. He, He asks that question, should we say that the law is sin? Is it sinful since sin is spurred on by the law? No is the answer. The law helps us see our sin. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. What does he mean by that? Well, when he says known here, he's not talking about your basic knowledge of right and wrong. you, You know right and wrong. That's not what he is talking about here. When he says, if it wasn't for the law, I would not have known sin. Known there is the knowledge of sinful depravity. That he knows he's a depraved sinner. And and it's the knowledge of the seriousness of sin. What the penalty for sin is. Paul says, I I wouldn't have known if it wasn't for the law. And you notice that Paul is speaking in in the uh, first person pronoun, I... And people have debated, like, who is the eye of verses 7 through 25 in Romans chapter 7. And there are actually three main options that it could be. First, he could be referring uh, to Adam's experience with God's command in the Garden of Eden. Secondly, he could be referring to Israel's experience of receiving the law at Mount Sinai. But the third option is the best, and it makes the most sense as you're just reading the Bible. Paul, no surprise here, Paul is speaking autobiographically about himself, his own life experience. So he's using these first person pronouns, I and me, for the rest of the chapter. Now in verses 7 through 13, he is referring mostly to his non-Christian past. So keep that in mind, how God convicted him of his sin. Now for us, if, if, I, if you're a believer and I say, hey, tell me how you came to faith in Christ, you would tell your story. You would give a testimony of faith in Christ. So we've got a lot of biblical evidence of what Paul's testimony was. We see it in Acts chapter nine, verses one through 18. It happened on the Damascus road. On the road to Damascus, he was three days blind. God knocked him off his high horse literally and convicted him of his sin He was going absolutely against Christ at that point, hated the church, was on his way to arrest more Christians, and and what happened is God saved him. Now, further on in Acts, Paul gives his salvation testimony, his story of coming to faith in Christ two more times. He does that himself in his own words. Paul's salvation was, as every salvation is a sovereign act of god saving a lost sinner this is what it means to come to faith in christ where god sovereignly acts and and saves the lost sinner and and what happens in in every situation it happened in paul's if you're a believer it happened in your life that you become aware of your need For a savior you realize you cannot do it on your own you realize that all your good works are like filthy rags and you realize that Jesus Christ died for your sins in your place at the cross at a point in time at a point in history and he was buried and three days later rose from the grave and you believe the gospel story that he is actually going to return in his in God's perfect time. With blessing for those who believe and with judgment for those who reject him, who do not believe. So this is what happens. The sinner becomes aware of their need. They confess their sin. They admit they're a sinner. They trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. This is what happened in Paul's life. I hope it's happened in yours. Now, I love Paul's take on it. He, he talks about his relationship with Jesus a lot, obviously, in the New Testament. But I specifically like his take on it in Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Here's how he explained what happened. He said, When he, who had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me. So, God, who chose Paul before the foundation of the world, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1, called Paul by his grace. Paul heard the gospel and was pleased, God was pleased to reveal Christ to him. What we learn very quickly as you read through the Bible is that God forces no one to repent against their will. God changes your will so that you want to repent. God opens your heart to the gospel message so that you want to repent. His kindness leads to what? Repentance. And so here is Paul, who had been brought up in Judaism from his youth, and he was taught by Gamaliel in Jerusalem. He followed the law to a T. In his own mind, he was very zealous for God. And he's an unbelieving Pharisee at that point. It was all about externals in his life. It wasn't about the heart. And God brought him to his senses on that given day when he's on the road to Damascus. I hope God has brought you to your senses about your condition spiritually and that you came to faith in Christ. I hope that is true about you. But he realized as God opened his heart to the gospel that it wasn't about external acts, it was about internal love for God, and he was convicted of his sin and came to faith in Christ. Trusted in Jesus. And he wouldn't have known how sinful he was if it wasn't for God's good law. Moving on in verse 7, he says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Who knows what command that is? It's one of the Ten Commandments. Who knows what number it is? It's the tenth. It's the tenth commandment. Okay, You see it in Exodus 20, verse 17, and Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 21. It's the tenth commandment. Now, I know a lot of us think this way. Well, one through ten, ten's probably not as bad as number one. Maybe I can get away with a little bit of that, you know, a little coveting. You know, like I like my neighbor's car. Come on, you know, cut me some slack. I'm not out murdering. I don't commit adultery. Can I please just covet a little bit and no one harass me for it? The problem is we've completely misunderstood God's commandments if we're going to take that kind of attitude towards coveting. A A lot of people would say this, you know, coveting's not as bad as some of the other ones. There's a reason why it's number 10, by the way, and I'll show that to you in just a moment. But let's just think about Paul. Before he came to faith in Christ, prior to conversion, Paul knew the command not to covet, but he didn't know the Lord. And so coming to Christ through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, he realized he can put no stock in his own abilities to keep God's standard. That is why, in Philippians 3, he says this about himself and fellow believers. He goes, we worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ, and we put no confidence in the flesh. None. He knew. Now, here's the man saying this, whose spiritual resume was, was pretty impressive, humanly speaking. A couple verses later, Philippians 3, verses 5 through 7, he rattles off his spiritual um, resume as an unbeliever. And here's what he said. Circumcised the eighth day, check. Of the tribe of, Is- of, the, of the people of Israel, check. Of the tribe of Benjamin, check. A Hebrew of Hebrews, check, check. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Then he says this. But whatever gain I had, I consider it loss for the sake of Christ. He realized that his life had been radically reoriented around Jesus Christ. And and here is Paul. Here is Paul in Romans chapter 7. Using his own experience, his own testimony, his own story, with the 10th command, do not covet, to explore the issue that he's talking about, about how the law is so good. And we think coveting is a lesser sin. We think it's okay to covet a little bit. Coveting, the Jews had a tradition that said it's at the root of all the sins. The basic sin is coveting. Coveting refers to uh, desires of the heart, not just outward actions, and it's the longing for every kind of wrong thing. It's the desire of the heart to do what is wrong and against God's will. It is the di- desire of the heart to do what God forbids. It is to do something, literally to will something against God's will. Ephesians 5.5 calls covetousness idolatry. Colossians 3.5 does the same. So someone filled with coveting is guilty of a fundamental sin. Because at that point, God is not their greatest treasure. God is not their greatest pleasure. And and they're claiming, you can even be claiming to worship God, but you have another God other than the one true God. Paul is admitting, he's like, I was full of coveting. There was no way Get out of that, except through the shed blood of Christ. Through faith in the shed blood of Christ. And what the law does is it convicts us of our sin. Now, of course, people without the law are aware of their sin. Romans 5.13 says sin was in the world before the law was given. Chapter 2, verse 12 says those who sin without the law will perish without the law. But starting right about Romans 3, in the middle uh, near the end, uh, in verse 20... Paul says the knowledge of sin is through the law. And he's continuing this idea. The revealed law shows us how sinful we are and how we have broken God's holy standard. Which is good because it exposes sin. Verse 7. That's the first point. Second point. Sin exploits the law. Verses 8 through 11. Look at verse 8. Sin seized opportunity. So he's picturing sin. He's like personifying sin, almost like a, a, an animal ready to you know, pounce and devour a, a ravenous wolf or something. And he says, sin seized opportunity through the command and produced in me all kinds of covetousness. He's giving his own story here. He's speaking from experience. He's confessing that he was a serial coveter. Before Jesus rescued him from the power and the penalty of sin, he was a serial coveter. This is a microcosm of humanity, is it not? This is this is mirroring the history of Adam. This is mirroring the history of Israel. This is mirroring our lives. So Paul is looking back on his life before he was a believer. And he's telling us how he became aware of his former condition and then how bad it got. Okay? Notice in verse 8, he says sin seized the opportunity. He also says it in verse 11. Did you notice that? In verse 11, he says the same thing, seize, seize the opportunity. Now, seizing the opportunity is different than you showing up at a sale, let's say, and, and getting a good deal. Seizing that opportunity, okay? This is a lot different here. Seizing the opportunity literally means getting a starting point, getting a base of operations for an expedition, and then getting all the resources you need to carry it out. So seizing the opportunity is literally planning the whole thing out. Now, he's talking about sin here. He's not talking about the command not to sin. Okay? Sin produced all sorts of coveting in Paul's heart by using the law as the base of operations, as the headquarters, as the home office, for the attack. So sin takes opportunity through the command by producing all sorts of coveting, uses the command as a base camp. Then Paul says this apart from the law, sin lies dead. What does he mean by that? Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Well, he's saying that the law is provoking, sin is using the law to provoke and stimulate sin. The passions to sin are aroused by the law. Uh, The desires to sin woke up with the arrival of specific commands. Let me test it on you. I'm going to command you not to do something, okay? Do not think of purple ponies or else you're in big trouble, large consequences for you if you think of purple ponies. Now, what are you all thinking about? Either the ponies or the consequences, right? You're like, what's going to happen to me if I think about purple ponies? Nothing bad today, okay? Think about them all you want, okay? The idea is that sin was asleep before the arrival of the law and it woke up and it exerts influence over desire for what is forbidden. And some people take evil pleasure in doing what is rebellious. They, They boast. They literally boast in their supposed independence to direct their own life, their self will, the And the root sin takes. We saw it in Romans chapter one, verses eighteen through twenty-five. The root sin takes is idolatry and self-worship. That's the root. That's the road that it takes. He's saying God's command cannot stop the desire to worship ourselves above God. Now, here's what the Jews told everyone. If you were a Jew back then, here's what you heard. The Torah, the law, curbs sin, and it diminishes its power over your life. Not true. Absolutely not true. It doesn't hold you back from sinning or diminishes its power over your life. So Paul's words would have shocked them. Literally would have shocked them because he says, no, the law does not prevent sin. It encourages it. He says in verse 9, I was once alive. He's not saying he was spiritually alive. He's saying he was humanly alive apart from the law. But when the law came in, when the command came in, sin became alive and I died. I realized I was spiritually dead. Uh, My religious deeds meant nothing. God gave a command and sin took advantage of it. Verse 10, the command that promised life. The, the, the command that promised resurrection and, and revival proved death to me. He learned no one can keep the law, that, that fallen sinful man gets death for all his efforts. He learned that salvation and eternal life is only through Jesus Christ. And that when you come to faith in Christ, as Romans 8 4 tells us, the law's requirements are fulfilled in our life by God. Because we have the Spirit of God indwelling us. Christ dwells in us. We are alive because of Christ's righteousness, and so now we can actually, in God's power, obey him. He says in verse 11, the thing he said before, he says it again, sin seizing opportunity. Sin is setting up its base camp. It's setting up its headquarters through the commandment, and then he says this, it deceived me it deceived me and not only that it killed me it deceived me it killed me we all know what it feels like to be deceived and it feels horrible doesn't it deceive here it it means what it what it means It, it means you're completely deceived You're completely fooled. You're disoriented even. It literally means that you got disoriented by sin and it makes you lose your way. That's literally what it means to deceive someone. Make them lose their way. It deceives you. Sin deceives you into thinking that you, by your own efforts, can work your way to God. Verse 11, when he talks about being deceived, he's referring to the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. In fact, flip over to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis and chapter three. See what happens. Verses four and five. Genesis three, verses four and five. God had already said in chapter two, um, eat of any tree of the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's what God said. So God revealed his will. Gave a command. Genesis 3, 4, and 5, the serpent comes up. Satan comes up and says, you won't die. God knows that when you eat of it, you will have your eyes opened and you will be like God and you will know good and evil. So what sin does is it makes you a double false promise as it deceives you. It lies to its victims. First promise is nothing bad's gonna happen. Just go ahead and do that. Nothing bad's gonna happen. You won't die. Second, you'll be happy and fulfilled. Your eyes will be opened, you'll be like God, you'll have knowledge. So there's no evil that will befall you, and and all pleasure will be yours. That's the lie, that's the wicked deception of sin. In fact, Paul doubles down on this in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 11.3, 1 Timothy 2.14, same word for deception, referring to Adam and Eve being deceived and how we get deceived. And what he's saying is sin increases strength by exploiting a good law. The law exposes sin first. Secondly, Sin exploits the law, and now he begins to make even a stronger case for how good the law is. Verse 12, the third thing here. The law is good, and I think we just need to admit how good it is today. It's so easy for Christians to think it is really bad, and it is really good. Verse 12 says it plainly. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good, literally just. And how do you die to something good? Because remember, he's already said he's died to the law. As in, when you were an unbeliever, you were under the law, you were under the demands, you were under the dominion. Now, as a believer, you've been set free. You've died to its dominion, but now with the Holy Spirit in you, you can actually obey God and what he says. Sin had used the law as headquarters to deceive and kill Paul. The command that was given to produce life, verse 10, uh, because it expresses God's perfect plan for humans. Was misused for evil. But what is true about the law, and it's always true about God's law, it is holy. It is set apart, it is perfect. It shows God's perfections. God's commands are holy, righteous, good, and just. His law show his perfections. And in fact, one glimpse of this is in Psalm nineteen. Psalm nineteen, verses seven through nine. And it speaks of, of the word of God in many different ways. It says this in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. They're to be, to be desired about everything. And so what you see is that God's law is good, it reveals what is good, it reveals how good and great and glorious God is, and God uses this good law to convict us of sin, so that we turn to him. The law is not sinful, it is holy. In Christ you are dead to the law's dominion, now you are indwelt by the Spirit of God, you are now free to obey God the law shows God's perfection uh, despite sin using the law as that base of operations to bring about more sin. Galatians 3 tells us that the law was like a guardian, a tutor to lead us to Christ, to show us our need for a savior. It's that good. And what you'll notice as you go through Romans is that the that Romans emphasizes the law and the gospel And both are good and used for God's glorious purposes. We should be very thankful for the law giving us an overwhelming conviction of our guilt and sinfulness. Because it makes us want to run to Jesus. In the face of great evil, we need great good. We want to run to Christ when we realize how sinful we are. And the gospel truth is, Jesus saves from sin. So, the law exposes that sin. Sin exploits the law, but the law is good. It is good. And then the fourth and last thing in our outline, verse 13. But sin is bad, and it's worse than you think. We must acknowledge sin's badness. Sin is the bad actor, not the law. Verse 13, did what is good bring death to me? And now for the second time in this passage, Paul says, absolutely not. No, it was sin producing death in me through what is good, the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. It's not the law's fault. He's using murder trial wording here. It's not the law against murder, but actual murder that deserves punishment. The law is good, breaking it is bad. The law doesn't cause death, sin does. Sin is evil as can be. He says at the end there of verse 13 that it would be seen to be sinful beyond measure. So that sin would be found to be sinful beyond measure, literally utterly Utterly. It comes from a Greek word, hyperbole. It's where we get our English word, hyperbole, which means to exaggerate something, to overstate something, right? To to magnify, over-magnify, overkill. Beyond measure literally means to throw something beyond, to be in excess, to be uh, even superior to, and to be beyond comparison. The idea is that sin would be seen as... For what it really is, the worst thing above all bad things. Paul is pouring his heart out here. Paul is basically saying, This is what I used to be like, and I'm so glad that God's law showed me my true condition. What should we do with that? You know, what should we do when we hear this in the Word and we know this in the Word? What we need to do is, is do what Paul does. He calls sin, sin. And he admits he's sinful. Miss the mark of God's glory. Fall short of God's standard. What we do is this. Here's what we like to do. Well, I am not as bad as other people. And we like to rank sins. Kind of like we rank the Ten Commandments. But the Bible doesn't rank the badness of sins, we do. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul is talking about how those who are unrighteous, those who are not in Christ, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he, he then speaks about what characterizes their life, the driving points of their life. And he says, don't be deceived, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, those who practice homosexuality, thieves, the greedy... And usually around this time, you're like, well, can I be a little greedy? I didn't do those other things. Drunkards, revilers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says this, you were like that before. Such were some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So that's no longer your identity anymore. You're now in Christ. But what he does is he says very clearly, sin is sin. And we're sinful. The verses leading up to the verses I just read, verse eight says, you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. He's talking to Christians saying, you're doing what is wrong. And what we do is we excuse certain sins because we think they're not as bad. And and sure, you know, you could say, well, the consequences differ. That's true. Certain sins that you commit There are civil consequences. There are relational consequences. There are spiritual consequences. But don't fall into the trap of thinking that all is well in your unconfessed sin just because you think yours is not as bad as someone else's. The one who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. Paul says take take care that you don't fall from your own steadfastness. There's a whole lot of uh, spiritual recidivism that happens, you know, falling away. You, You see it, by way of, uh, of, uh, of illustration, take the prison system just in California. Percentage of prisoners that return to prison within three years, 61%. Take divorce, take the breakdown of the family. Most second and third marriages end sooner than the first one did. And Spiritually, I think the number one reason for falling back into sin and into patterns of sin is we won't call sin, sin. We redefine it in our own lives. It's easy for us to look at someone else and say, well, look what they're doing. We redefine it in our own lives and we say, well, I made a mistake. You know, I uh, had a relapse. I stumbled. I stubbed my toe. Sin is sin. We need to call it sin. We're we're accountable to God. Sin here should be seen as utterly sinful, as bad as can be. And, And it starts, where does it start? It starts in the heart, doesn't it? That's what Jesus said, Matthew 15, verse 19, out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. And and we look at a list like that and go, well, hey, I didn't do the first five, but I can slander with impunity. See, in Christ, we should be fixated on him and what he likes, what he loves. You know what he loves? He loves confessed sin. He died for our sins. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous and will forgive us of our sins and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who wouldn't want that? But here's the problem. Everyone's guilty, no one's clean. What we do is we encourage, we excuse things like gossip, like slander, gluttony, uh, judgmental attitudes, unfair criticism, unkindness. All while we're saying, oh, you know, I'm speaking the truth. Uh, I want to help. And while we're doing that, we neglect the word of God. We neglect prayer. We neglect the spiritually dead and dying. We neglect the poor and the needy and the starving, even on our own doorstep. Here's what we do. We put other people under a microscope, but we are unwilling to put the stethoscope up to our own hearts. We gotta get our eyes off the microscope that we have on other people and we need to be willing to put the stethoscope up on our heart and call sin sin and admit we're sinful and then what the Spirit of God will do is he, the Spirit of God will inspire us to confess our sins, to admit where we're wrong, uh, to humbly apologize, to, to stop pointing fingers, to, to serve people with evident love for them and, and to let things go even. I don't know where you're at today. I really don't. But let's just say you go, I've, I've kind of wondered. I see what we're saying here. Well, all you need to do is repent and be reconciled. <laughs> you know, what, what has been shattered can be repaired. Jesus uh, restores. Uh, wherever you're at today, there is hope in Jesus Christ. He, he breaks chains of sin. If the Son shall set you free, you shall be what? Free indeed. Absolutely free. Absolutely free. And, and the kind of hearts he changes are the yielded, humble kind on a continual basis. And, and I would just ask you this today. What chains of sin has God broken in your life lately? And again, I'm not saying, well, you have to have something. You got to come up with something, you know, of an open confession time here. We're not going to do that. But let's just say you you say, I've been following Jesus for a long time, and I can't think of any chains of sin that Jesus has broken in my life. There's something wrong with that. And the question is do you realize how powerful God is? Do you realize how powerful he is? That Greek word uh, hyperbole, hyperbole, uh, is also used. I'm going to give you two other examples where it's used in the New Testament. And it's, it's powerful. 2 Corinthians 4.7. Paul is talking about the surpassing greatness of the power of God. Okay? The surpassing greatness of the power of God uh, obliterates utterly sinful sin. Ephesians 1, verse 19, the surpassing greatness of God's power towards us who believe obliterates the utterly sinful sin. And and we cannot fool ourselves. Sin is a lethal weapon. And it is far worse than we think. It is sinful beyond measure, but have no fear. God's power is beyond measure. This is what we've seen today. Some, some think the law is bad. The problem is our sin. The, the law does its job. It, it shows us how sinful we are. And if we agree that the law is good because it shows us our need for Christ, we must also agree that sin is bad and admit our sins. Just confess our sins of hypocrisy and judgment and lack of love and empathy. Empathy, And it, it should make you a better daughter or son it should make you a better sister or brother make you a better spouse should make you a better worker a better church member a better citizen and i bring this to a close i just want to say this please please do not think about someone else right now this is what we always do i do the same thing we always think about the other the person that needs their heart changed don't think about someone else right now think about your own heart Don't push this away. Just let God put put the stethoscope up on you. We have a continual battle with sin in this life so that we would look to Jesus Christ. And if you love Christ, you'll call your sin sin. You'll admit it, you'll confess it, you'll turn from it. Paul knew he was sinful. He knew his ongoing wretchedness. He a wretched man that I am. And he took the continual cure, the ongoing cleansing by Christ's shed blood. James one twenty-two tells us, "Be doers of the word, not merely hearers who deceive themselves." I can get up here every week, and I could just, you know, pour my heart out to you, and not make you do one thing. Do you realize that I can't make you do one thing? You answer to God; He's your master. But I want you to follow through on this. I'm going to ask you to follow through on this. You're accountable to God, and you don't live to yourself. So, if there's something that God has brought into your mind, something that you need to make right, something you need to confess, I want to ask you that you would speak to one person about whatever that matter is within the hour. Within the hour, just don't push it away. Just know the power of God and know his forgiveness in Christ. This is what drives life and ministry that is gospel-flavored and gospel-infused. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He said, I came to you, brothers, not proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man, but on the power of God. That's for us. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you, you mean to encourage us beyond measure with Romans chapter 7 and give us a picture of the realistic Christian life, not despair, but actually joy, which would lead us to a, a conclusion, a, a crescendo of praise to you that we would get to the end of this chapter and say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that you unite believers Christ so that we would bear fruit for you And, and we thank you even that it is a battle with sin all the way through so that we would put our trust in in Jesus Christ in whose name we pray amen